everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of our poolside series of class action topics. Today, I'm joined by Ruth Overington, partner in our Melbourne office, and Melissa Gladstone-Joyce, senior lawyer in our Sydney office, two very experienced class action practitioners. And we are going to break down a little bit uh, the most significant development probably in the class action landscape at the moment, which is the release in December last year of the Parliamentary Joint Committee report into litigation funding and the regulation of the class action industry. And it's a timely document, albeit that I think practitioners and the industry guys are probably suffering from report fatigue and reform fatigue at the moment, but it was a holistic review. And I think why it's happening now, aside from the political imperatives, are that we've had a federal court class action regime at least for almost three decades. And the procedural mechanisms in there um, have developed significantly through the common law, but we haven't seen a lot of statutory or rule reform. And so it's a timely check-in on, is this landscape that we're dealing with at the moment um, fit for purpose when compared to the original reasons why we created a class action regime? So that was sort of the focus of the Parliamentary Committee's report. I thought that there was probably no better way. We all sat through the hearings. Uh, or, or the majority of them, they were politically infused and, and controversial and fiery. And they raised most of the topics that have been debated for the last decade or so. I thought in introducing our discussion, I would use some language from the report itself. It's not every day you read a, a, a parliamentary committee report, any quasi-governmental report that has such strong language. And um, I did, I, I, I was reflecting on this quote uh, directly. This is not my, this is not the words of a defendant's lawyer. It's directly from the report itself. Australia's highly unique and favourable, favourably regulated litigation funding market has become a global hotspot for international investors, including many based in tax havens and with dubious corporate histories to generate investment returns unheard of in any other jurisdiction, in some cases of more than 500%. This is directly from the report and the reasons why the report was commissioned. And it goes on to say, this is directly the result of a regulatory regime described by ASIC as a light touch and under which no successful action by a regulator has ever been taken against a funder. So you only need to read that, which is in the first five pages to know that this report's gonna focus heavily on the returns to the promoters of class actions, and it did, and the hearing bore that out as well. So with that sort of introduction as to the the focus of the Parliamentary Committee, Ruth, maybe turning over to you to get some general impressions of the committee's work and the reforms that have been proposed. Yeah, it's, as you say, it was a comprehensive review and the report uh, bears that out. It's about a 400-page document. Um, it's It's detailed, so lots of the topics, I should say, they covered a broad array of issues, the key issues that have been um, percolating in the class action industry now for some years. They, they sort of took them all head on. Um, and so the report itself tries to deal with all of those and I think does a, a good job at sort of distilling what the issues are. The recommendations they make, there's about 31 of them. 
So a lot of recommendations on any view. Um, a number of them are quite specific and very sort of tangible recommendations for next steps. Um, but on some of the bigger topics, you know, that that's particularly the sort of the, the I think at the core of the funding issue, which is how much can a funder re receive from a piece of class action litigation. That's an issue that the, the committee recognised is still, it is so significant and so substantive that it requires some further review. And so there are a couple of topics like that, really substantive ones, where the committee has recognised that, that even though they did spend a lot of time looking at this, there's still a bit more work to be done before any kind of final sort of views could be reached as to what's an appropriate um, decision or conclusion on those topics. So a broad array of topics covered in depth as you say, and the report reflects that. There's 31 recommendations, but there's also a couple of the key issues that are identified for further review and consideration by the government, particularly, particularly around the return to a funder, and also the question around um, shareholder class action. Some of those issues are identified for further consideration later on. But there's a lot in there, Jason, and, and certainly a lot to um, to absorb. And, and you know, a, a timely and I think useful distillation of all of the various issues that have been around now for some years into a way that can be meaningfully taken forward from a legislative um, perspective. So that's sort of a broad overview of, of the report itself. What do, you, what do you think, Mel, the, the recommendations, some of the key themes and, and areas that came out of that, what's been occupying your mind? Well, that's right, a few things that you and Ruth have both picked up on. I mean, of the 31, you've got well over half relating to funders and the key theme there really being greater regulation, greater oversight. Um, also, you've then got a large number of them that are relating to class action practice and procedure. So it doesn't sound super exciting, but not as dry as you might think. These are the things that uh, occupy a lot of our time day to day and that have an impact on how well and how quickly and efficiently cases progress um, and provide um, the issues that may provide some certainty for defendants and what group members can expect in how the class action actually runs. So um, for me, you know, multiplicity, um, class closure were, were um, it, you know, important areas that fit under this kind of class action practice and procedure banner. And then there were a few, you know, miscellaneous other areas that the, that the report touched on, the role of the federal court, um, obviously the continuous disclosure framework um, being another big one. Um, so as Ruth said, look, a lot of these, um, the recommendations are framed as a, let's take a look at the practice note, for example, and see where we can amend it. But others are calls for further consideration uh, rather than actual reform, which, you know, for some of these, it's probably appropriate for some further reflection given the, the range of views on some of the issues. But also, as we all know, this is the third reform um, in the same kind of number of years. So um, it's it might be people still calling for some action in these areas, I think. Yeah, I, maybe let's talk about those reforms in a little bit more detail as we do. And I might throw to you, Ruth, in a minute. But as we do, it seemed to me if there's one unifying theme of the report, it, it, it focuses on uh, something that's made good in a statistic. I think Professor Cashman's been talking about late last year, early this year, as part of his detailed research in the area, which is when you look at a significant sample of class action litigation across all of the species, all of the sectors, all of subject matter, 
something in the vicinity of 40% of the recoveries, largely through settlements, very occasionally through judgments, I think in this case, all through settlements, 40% of that goes to the promoters of class actions, funders and, and legal fees. Now, that's a, that's a significant proportion, but the counter argument is without that proportion, none of these actions would be brought. So there's a, there, it, there's a debate philosophical about these are high returns to class action promoters, but at the same time, there is an access to justice issue and need that they're supplying. And I think that's, the, that's why this is so politically charged. That's a hard question to come out on one side or the other of because it's actually a nuanced debate. But anyway, Ruth, that, that was sort of one of the umbrella topics under which many of these reforms seem to be addressed in the report. And I, I think the one key area is funders and I, the regulation of funders be interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I mean, you're right. The, the return that funders get was a big impetus for this committee even um, looking at these issues. The, there was this sense that there were excessive returns going to funders. And the way they kind of consider it is, is effectively that the funders are getting a return from their investment, which is disproportionate to the capital that they're putting at risk. So that excessive return in that sense, excessive return for the risk at stake, is what the committee was looking at. And I think, I think the key takeaway in terms of the committee's recommendations on the funding piece is that they're not trying to reduce the amount of litigation funding available in the market. Their, their ultimate position is litigation funding is a good thing, but the excessive returns are not. And so their recommendations are very much focused on trying to make it a more equitable distribution as between funders and group members in that litigation funding model. And so part of that is, is saying, okay, well, well, we think the government has, has taken the right steps in terms of introducing more regulation into the funding market. So the, the steps that were taken last year, the committee um, ticked off and said, yes, they're a good step forward. Um, that is sort of subjecting funders to the, the same licence obligations that apply to other providers of financial services. The committee said, yes, that's a good thing. The committee also said um, having or, or treating a class action investment as a managed investment scheme is also a good step in the right direction. But the committee recognised that actually the current managed investment scheme regime doesn't work for a class action. So essentially it's recommended that there be a more bespoke managed investment scheme regime that is more appropriate for a class action. So, so on the regulation side of things, there were sort of um, uh, confirmation that steps made last year are the right ones, but they should go further and they should be more bespoke. And then in terms of the litigation itself, there was a recognition that a lot of funders do already take steps in the litigation that are appropriate. Um, so things like indemnifying a representative plaintiff where there's a funder involved and they're providing security for costs um, to protect essentially the defendant um, to enable them to recover any adverse cost order that's ultimately made if the class action is unsuccessful. So that sort of practice that had emerged of funders providing that sort of um, that, that sort of support to the litigation, that's the sort of thing that the committee has said, we want to make sure that that is now enshrined so that that actually is not just sort of at the discretion of the funder, that that is a requirement or a part of the price, if you like, of funding the litigation. So 
there are those sorts of steps that the committee has recommended, which effect effectively codify what were practices emerging. But I think the overall takeaway that I take from the, the funding um, aspects of this report, which are a huge, huge amount of the 400 odd pages, is that the committee doesn't want to deter funders from assisting to fund class actions. They just want to spread spread the, the return so that the funders are not making a windfall gain. So that's, that's probably the way I'd describe that funding piece, Jase. Ruth, do you, do you think that there'll be traction for this idea of a, a statutory cap on the returns to funders, or, or I should probably put another way, a minimum return that group members need to achieve? That, that was that's politically fused and charged and got a little bit of post-report debate within the parliament itself. Yeah, and I think that's the one that sort of that they, they haven't reached a landing on that sort of floated ideas around certain percentages and that it may be desirable, but they haven't actually reached a landing on it. It's a, I think it's a difficult one to mandate because each class action is different in terms of the the quantum at stake is different. So a percentage, even if you've got a small percentage, if the value of the case is very large, that still might be a very large return to a funder, which may still exceed the, the capital that they put at risk. So I think there are some nuances around that. Having said that, um, you know, clearly there is some appetite to actually put a, put a cap on it, a, a maximum. And I think we're now seeing some of the courts reflect that kind of concept. Um, some of the judges are now starting to raise these sorts of issues in settlement approval hearings. So I think one way or the other, that issue is probably going to find find a, a solution as in a maximum will be will be fixed somewhere along the line. Yeah, I suppose conversely as well, there are it'll create interesting economic impacts because there are claims where the projected quantum might be say $30 million or less and the, yet the costs are going to be somewhat significant because the case is still complex. Um, and with mandates about group member recovery limits, you could, you could see those sorts of claims being priced out of the market because the, the costs are simply always going to outweigh, you know, something that would make a 70% return to group members viable. So it, it, it's, it's very complicated. Um, economic factors at play there. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And it also would sort of, I think, lend itself to running the same types of class actions so that the funder is effectively getting um, economies of scale and therefore can reduce the costs associated with them. So to your point, yes, those sort of more novel cases, you would think they're less likely to attract funding if you've got that added hurdle of minimum return, therefore, you know, incentive to reduce those costs. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think that makes makes sense. It's all happening on this podcast. The lights are out at your end, Ruth. Mel's disappeared briefly. It's, I mean, if only people could understand what we're doing here to keep this thing going. The the um, I'm going to throw Mel to you in a minute, um, just to talk a little bit about multiplicity. But a segue to that, I'd say 70% of everything I heard during the the hearings had a subtext which was about shareholder class actions and maybe more specifically about continuous disclosure. And 
at, at the root of all of those discussions was sort of this question about whether I think everyone agrees that shareholder class actions which invoke sections, yeah, the contingent disclosure provision 6742, those provisions are about market integrity, maintaining an informed market. Everyone sort of agrees at that level of generality, that's a good thing. Um, there's another question, which is, is the provision now a launching pad for, for shareholder class actions and therefore a mechanism for a profitable funding market? Now, that maybe both can coexist, but there's, there's tension between them. And so that led to, I thought, uh, a heated debate, but a muted response in the Parliamentary Committee report itself. What they said is, as everyone knows, there's a temp there, there is temporary relief in place for continuous disclosure flowing from the COVID circumstances. It broadly introduces a, a mental element to the test for whether information is disclosable. I'm paraphrasing horribly, but you have to disclose information unless it you can hold it back unless it would be negligent or reckless to hold back the material information. Now, uh, the committee recommended extending that temporary relief. My thing is maybe that's a little underdeveloped in the sense, as we all know, that the temporary relief doesn't impact the misleading and deceptive conduct provisions of, of the Corporations Act and the ASIC Act, and you can run a whole class action, a whole shareholder class action through those provisions without touching 6742. And at a more nuanced level, I think there'd need to be some amendments made to the listing rules because at the moment, the temporary relief only kicks in if you've got listing rule information and listing rule information is material in the sense that it's important to investors. And so you've got to have information that's important to investors, but it's not going to be negligent or reckless to hold it back. That's a pretty narrow lane, I think, of actual relief that's being supplied there. So a broader debate about that that's not really given full-throated effect in the report. And then curiously, something that's probably not getting much attention, this is the segue to you, Mel, is there was a debate about shareholder class actions being prolific and a lot of competing claims and how inefficient and resource intensive it is to sort out competing claims. The response that the committee offers is, let's make it a requirement to only file shareholder class actions in the federal court. Again, a little curious because um, it's not as though, we're seeing a lot of multiplicity within that court. Um, it's not as though the only multiplicity problem is you can file in any jurisdiction in Australia, no. Most of the multiplicity, in fact, with one famous ex ex exception is occurring within the federal court. So query if that's not quite the right solution to the problem, but multiplicity, Mel, I've been talking about it, Ruth, you have too, Mel, for, for a long time, over 12 months about the problem of this. What's your take on that issue and, and the report itself? I think it really stems from one of the things that the report talks about at the start, which is really the, the ease of commencing shareholder class actions in Australia and the low hurdles for commencement. And of course, the the report tries to grapple with that idea at the start around whether there should be some certification or quasi-certification process, but doesn't really come to a landing. That's one of the areas for some further consideration. So while we do have this environment where it is relatively easy to commence a class action and there's not really a uniform way in how multiple or competing class actions are dealt with that deal with the same subject matter, we do have this confluence of events, which means that most of the cases that we're dealing with uh, have a multiplicity issue in play. And this is, as I said, important for us for a couple of reasons, right? It's a, it's a drain on 
time cost, it adds another layer of uncertainty to a already quite uncertain process. Um, to drain on the court's time, um, I think our submission to the inquiry was useful and that it really stepped out kind of the, some of the statistics, which we we all knew it anecdotally, but to look and see that you know it's over 35% um, of the class actions in Australia have a multiplicity element. And then if you look at what that means for time, it's adding a considerable amount of time to each of these cases. Um, in some cases, these competing claims are commenced in pretty quick succession. Sometimes there's more than two. So you've got a few in quick succession and then others filed months later. Um, and so for me, there were two important takeaways from the recommendations. The first, being that there's an express power in how to resolve these issues um, and requiring judges to, you know, hold a selection hearing. I mean, look, the court has always had the inherent power to manage its own processes in an efficient way and so has been able to resolve these uh, multiplicity issues. It's just not been done uniformly and that's not uniformly in, in the federal court or in some of the state supreme courts. Uh, it depends a little bit on how the judge is managing their caseload um, and um, also the position of the parties in the case. Do the plaintiffs, for example, want to come together and consolidate or run things in a harmonised way? There's a whole range of, of ways to resolve the issues. So for me, though, that, that it was the second recommendation that I found more interesting, which again links to some of the time factors that we're looking at when we see um, the difference between when the cases are filed and then also how long it takes for the multiplicity issue to be resolved. So one of the recommendations was to have a 90-day standstill period from when the first uh, case is commenced uh, and really allowing then uh, other promoters to come forward with their claims within that particular window. So, I mean, an interesting recommendation. There's, for me, something to that because my sense is that most class action promoters will know within that time frame whether or not they're interested in bringing a particular case. It's also useful from the defendant's perspective, obviously, which is giving a little bit of certainty of how long do I have to keep looking over my shoulder as to whether another of these cases is going to be filed against us relating to the same issue that we're trying to deal with and, and move on with. Um, but also when you have a look and see that some of these cases, it's months in between, in many of the jurisdictions that we work in, four or five or, or six months between um, uh, the subsequent class action being filed sees you putting on, you've had a case management or directions hearing, you've likely or most certainly put on your pleading or your, de your defence to the, to the plaintiff or applicant's case. You've sometimes had debates about um, a range of interlocutory issues, including further and better particulars, discovery discussions may have already started. So you've taken a number of active steps in the case, only then perhaps to find that that's all potentially wasted work and that you're actually back at square one because you've now got another case and then you've got this big interlocutory hurdle to overcome before you can get on with the day-to-day -day of trying to progress the case. Um, so that for me was one of the um, most interesting recommendations because of the practical effect it would have on kind of how we run a lot of our cases. Ruth, I'm going to hand over to you perhaps for some final sort of wrap-up comments on any particular topic flowing out of the committee. Yeah, I think I think the key thing is sort of what happens next in all of this. Um, and a number of the recommendations, which really around things like, as Melissa said, amending practice notes and making clear, if it wasn't already, the court's power to 
actively manage their cases so that they can minimise inefficiency and the like. And I think those sorts of recommendations, it's hard to see any resistance to them. And so I think those sorts of recommendations should go through pretty quickly. The bigger issue will be for those more substantive questions, things like whether a funding commission cap should exist. That's where, you know, it is still a bit unknown. What, what are the next steps on that? Where is the debate going to happen? Is it a parliamentary debate um, with all the sort of surrounding um, discussion in, in the, the market more generally? Um, or, or is it some other forum, you know, as I think Melissa said earlier on, we've had a lot of inquiries to date. Um, you know, it would be good to see some finality on some of these issues, which are difficult, but just to bring them to a head so that we actually have some clarity going forward. So to me, the big issue is for those, um, it's clear what's going to happen for the more, more sort of procedural type recommendations. They will go through probably pretty quickly. I think the bill well, the Parliament has already um, tabled the report, so you would think that those sorts of amendments are not far away. But the, the bigger issues, that's the that's still the unknown. Where where to next on those ones? And I think that's the issue issue for me, which is um, not dealt with in terms of the finality piece, um, and therefore one that's going to remain a topic that we'll be discussing, I suspect, for some time to come. That, that's right. Um, well, that's the key point, next steps. And even if a modest selection of the recommendations are, are actually implemented, it'll still constitute, I think, the most substantive reform uh, in the Australian class action industry uh, in, in its almost 30-year history. Um, now, I don't think as we speak uh, to the audience, the federal government's announced the timing of its response. But as you say, Ruth, that would be, I would have thought, something in the first couple of quarters of this year. And so um, we will see how many of these uh, recommendations find legislative life. Uh, thanks, Mel and Ruth, for a great discussion of the Parliamentary Committee's report. We'll obviously monitor the outcomes closely and we'll report further in discussions like the, this on some of the key implementations. But in the interim, thank you to the audience for joining us for this edition in our Poolside series. And we look forward to talking to you again in an upcoming session. Thanks, everyone. <music>